Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Zane Asher in for Julia Chastley. So good to have you with us just ahead on today's show. Focus on the Fed. The U.S. Central Bank is out with its closely watched uh, interest rate decision later on today. Markets hoping for signs of an upcoming rate hike pause. Plus, debt ceiling dealing. U.S. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy sitting down to discuss raising the debt limit. It is a high stakes political battle likely to drag on for months. But can they actually agree on anything today? We'll break it down for you later on in the show. As markets brace for a busy day in Washington, it's looking like a lower open uh, pretty much across the board as Wall Street kicks off. Yeah, it is February 1st, by the way. Yes, Wall Street kicking off a new trading month. Europe, however, in the green with new numbers showing Eurozone inflation falling for a third straight month. Just released data in the U.S. uh, shows that private U.S. employers adding a weaker than expected 106,000 jobs uh, last month. Wall Street was expecting a rise of almost 200,000 jobs. Bad weather, largely to blame. And ADP, the company that put out the report, says that the job market does remain solid. We will be having an all-inclusive U.S. jobs report uh, later on this week coming up on Friday. One thing is for certain, though, the Federal Reserve is surely watching all of these data points uh, very, very closely indeed. Let's bring in uh, Christine Romans uh, to talk about all things Fed. So we have seen, I mean, I've lost track now, but I believe about seven or eight uh, rate increases just between last year and in terms of what's coming up today. We know that it's going to be a much smaller rate hike. What is what's going to be the reaction to that, do you think, Christine? I mean, look, the consensus is that we're heading into a new phase here and that inflation numbers are showing signs of moderating and that wage growth is showing signs of moderating and the job market may be slowing just a tiny bit, still strong, but slowing just a tiny bit. That shows the Fed's work uh, has been has been working its way through the economy. And the consensus is 25 basis points uh, later today. Listen to the chief economist of Wells Fargo. Yes, the Fed is ratcheting it back. No longer, no need to go 75 basis points or even 50 anymore. They're kind of at the fine-tuning stages of their tightening cycle. And so, yes, we expect them to go 25 basis points today. The fine-tuning stages as we wait for that wall of tightening, those uh, seven rate increases we've already seen working their through, way through the economy. Um, it's interesting that ADP number from just an hour ago, uh, lighter than Wall Street forecasts. There are some hopes, believe it or not, that moderating job gains uh, in a couple of days would send the right signal to the Fed that it's doing uh, the right thing and that even if there is a, a, a recession this year, Zane, it would be mild because you do have the backdrop of, of a strong economy and still a solid labor market. And, and the key here, Christine, is not just what Jerome Powell does in terms of interest right. rate hikes. I mean, 25 basis points, you mentioned that is the consensus, but it's also what he says. I mean, people are going to be hanging on to every single word, looking for clues about the overall health uh, of the U.S. economy. 
Yeah, and already you've got people wondering if the Fed has gone too far and they may have to turn around, uh, pause for a period of time and then turn around and start taking some of those rate hikes back. Certainly that's something that has been uh, cheering Wall Street um, in in January. And then what happens beyond? I mean, if if 2022 was a transition year and 2023 you face the risk risk of a mild recession uh, at worst, but also you could see a a soft landing. Then what, how are we set up for 2024? Um, So all of this very, um, I'm going to tell you, last year and the year before were almost impossible for economic forecasters to get right. And so they're a little timid in 2023, just following the Fed here, honestly, just following the Fed, hanging on Jerome Powell's every word and trying to, um, uh, and try to figure out whether you get a soft landing or whether you get a mild recession. Oh, we shall see what happens uh, <laughs> between 2 and 2.30 today. All right, Christine Roman's life yep. was there. Thank you so much. All right, shares of Snap sinking in pre-market trading following its fourth quarter earnings report. This, uh, the Snapchat parent uh, posted a net loss of almost $300 million. It also warned that revenue in the current quarter is expected uh, to drop. Paula Monica joins us live with all of this. Uh, not a great day so far for uh, Snapchat at all, or Snap rather, the parent company. Blaming, they're blaming a slowing economy, and that is really slashing their digital ad budgets. Just walk us through that. Yeah, exactly, Zane. It seems like, uh, as uh, you know, Christine uh, was talking about with you just a few moments ago, recession worries probably are already here and hitting advertisers. They are not spending as much on social media platforms like Snapchat, and that is a big problem for the company. The company saying that revenue down so far in this quarter, and they expect a drop when all is said and done, uh, when the first quarter officially ends in March. And that is a problem. Snapchat has struggled to be consistently profitable. They weren't in this quarter. And they obviously face a lot of competition. TikTok, whether or not it gets banned, is of course a major competitor, but also from larger social media companies. You've got Alphabet, which owns Google, has YouTube Shorts. You know, Meta owns Facebook, Instagram, Reels. So Snapchat facing many challenges beyond a slowing economy and digital ad sales dropping. Another company that's struggling right now is, of course, Intel. Uh, Their CEO essentially agreeing to a 25 percent pay cut. And actually, it's not just the CEO, because there are other executives within the company that are um, are having to contend with pay cuts of 15 percent, some people 5 percent. And it's all because we're seeing excess supply in terms of chip manufacturers and also this, this real sort of drop in demand when it comes to PCs and computers. Just walk us through it. Yeah, Intel obviously had a disastrous uh, quarter when they reported their most recent results. And now executives and other employees are paying the price with these um, cuts in pay. It doesn't sound like it's going to be hitting the hourly workers, though. But with Intel, they don't have as much diversification in the chip market as their rival AMD. AMD reported earnings last night that topped forecasts, saying, and even though AMD mentioned the same weakness in PCs and gaming, they have a big data center server business that is actually doing really well, and that helped bolster their results. Intel not doing nearly as well, not as diverse as AMD, which has been rapidly gaining market share and ground against its larger rival. All right, Paula Monica, life for us there. Thank you so much. 
All right, Ukraine is braced for what could be a maximum escalation uh, in the war. The warning comes from a top Ukrainian security official. He told Sky News that you know, it could happen within weeks following recent changes in Russian activity at sea and in the air. Meantime, anti-corruption searches have been launched across uh, Ukraine. The State Bureau of Investigation said it found cash, luxury watches and cars at the residence of the head of the Kyiv Tax Authority. Scott McLean is following all of this from our London newsroom. I think what's really come to light over the past year and actually even beyond just the past year is really uh, Ukraine's struggle against corruption. It's war on corruption within its own borders. Just walk us through that. Yeah, pre, pre-war Ukraine uh, certainly was one of the most corrupt countries in Europe, really struggling with this problem and certainly uh, hampering its development as a country as well. Uh, and President Zelensky seemed to telegraph this latest crackdown on corruption by promising that reforms were coming to make the country more effective and more transparent. It also comes after a series of crackdowns, firings and resignations of some top high-level officials last month over corruption allegations and Uh, Oddly enough, just two days before a Ukraine-EU summit scheduled to take place in Kyiv on Friday. So this latest crackdown includes searches of the state tax service, the dismissal of the entire management team of the customs agency, and notices of suspicion were also served to several officials in the Defense Department. Now, in announcing the raids, the uh, majority leader in the Ukrainian parliament said, look, his country is going to change. And If everyone's not on board with those changes, then the state is there to kind of help them along. So one of the raids was on the, as you mentioned, the head of the tax authority in Kyiv, accused essentially of selective enforcement of uh, taxes and looking the other way on about 1.2 billion U.S. dollars in unpaid taxes. And as you saw there, officials found at in searches of his home and his office, uh, cash totaling some $175,000, luxury cars, luxury watches. CNN has also attempted to reach out for comment uh, to this individual. Another one of the raids actually related to the helicopter crash that took place last month, killing 14 people, including the then interior minister. This raid was on the property of the former interior minister who was in the job back in 2018 when those fleet of helicopters was actually purchased from France. He denies there was any wrongdoing, saying that, look, those contracts were vetted, approved by Parliament, and that everything was on, on above board. Investigators, though, at the time, Zane, said that, look, they are going to try to find every or any possible cause of this crash, from everything from a pilot error to a technical malfunction to sabotage. I just want to turn now to the sort of um, expected maximum escalation that Russia is about to impose um, on Ukraine. I mean, this is coming at a pivotal point in this war. You know, we know that obviously the Ukrainians are going to be getting the Leopard 2 tanks, for example, and those will be crucial. But it's going to take some time, A, for the tanks uh, to arrive, but also for Ukrainians to actually be trained on this type of weaponry. Just explain what happens in the meantime. Yeah, so pretty much everything that Ukraine is asking will take a while to actually reach the front lines. The Patriot battery systems require some extensive training to get those in place, plus the the tanks, which are all coming from 12 different countries. We'll all need people to be trained on those as well before they're on the front lines. They're also now asking for fighter jets, even long-range missiles, even if they were to be given fighter jets, and there's no indication that they will. 
the training on those could take some six months. But officials in the meantime are saying, look, this maximum escalation campaign that the that the, they're predicting the Russians are going to go ahead with is going to come in the next two or three months. They're saying the most pivotal battles in this war will be fought in that timeline and uh, that they're even prepared for something to happen in the next two or three weeks. And uh, one official, one defense official in the south of the country said that some of the evidence for this is actually found not just on land, but in the Black Sea, saying that there is intelligence that missile carriers in the Black Sea are, are moving around in unusual ways or unusual patterns. And there's also uh, aircraft activity that suggests that the Russians are trying to coordinate uh, their uh, air force with some of their naval activities as well in preparation for this uh, expected spring offensive, Zane. All right, Scott McLean, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, in Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is saying that he will prioritize peace with Arab neighbors first before pursuing talks with the Palestinians. He spoke to CNN's Jake Tapper in an exclusive interview. I think we can get hung up on this, and we have in the past. People said, you know, Unless you resolve this issue and unless you have peace with the Palestinians, you're not going to have a broader peace with the Arab world. So for 25 years, the Palestinians who don't want peace with Israel want to see a peace without Israel, who don't want a state next to Israel, but a state instead of Israel. They had an effective veto on Israel's expansion of the peace, circle of peace around it. I went around them. There is a formula for peace, but my view is because of the, the fact that the, the continuum, the persistent Palestinian refusal which goes back a century, to recognize a Jewish state, a nation state for the Jewish people in any boundary, that persistent refusal persists. If we wait for them, we're not going to have peace. People have said you have to work your way outside in, first inside out. First, peace with the Palestinians, peace with the Arab world. I think realistically it's going to be the other way around. But are you If we make peace with Saudi Arabia, it depends on the Saudi leadership, and bring effectively the Arab-Israeli conflict to an end, I think we'll circle back to the Palestinians and get a workable peace with the Palestinians. I think that's possible, and I think that's the way to go. Nick Robertson joins us live now from Jerusalem. So, Nick, how, how realistic is that? And this idea that Netanyahu is talking about, you know, sort of, uh, re, sort of uh, um, changing the peace process and going from outside in, trying to make peace with Saudi Arabia. Obviously, they share a common enemy in terms of Iran, making peace with the Saudis first and then trying to get peace with the Palestinians. How realistic is that? Well, there's a couple of things. I was in Ramallah yesterday talking to Palestinians on the street and, and uh, well-experienced Palestinian diplomats. And, and a number of people pointed out to us, they said, look, uh, these Abraham Accords, the relationship, the new relationship that Israel has struck with the UAE, with Qatar, with some other regional Arab powers, um, is a relationship between leaders. They pointed to the World Cup and said, look, at the World Cup, um, supporters of Arab countries um, did not want to be joining in parching and fun with uh, Israeli uh, supporters there, Israel supporters there. So this, they say, points to the fact that the leaders might have a rapprochement with, with, with leadership in Israel, but the people level on the street, the popular level, it's not there. Now, these countries that we're talking about, UAE, they're not popularly elected governments, so perhaps it doesn't really matter. Saudi Arabia is the same. But the view of, in, in Saudi Arabia is that if there is a deal to be done with Israel, it needs to be done with a leader in Israel who can deliver on what the Saudis want. And they believe and they feel that they have a high price to, to, to ask 
because they, the king is the custodian of the two holy mosques, the two holiest places in Islam, and that gives them a very important standing in the Islamic world. And they don't feel at the moment, the Saudis don't feel or don't appear to feel that Benjamin Netanyahu, with his far-right government, is a leader that they can actually do a deal with who can deliver what they want. Now, we're talking about the king of Saudi Arabia, King Salman. His son, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the heir apparent, is, uh, may feel enabled and emboldened because he does move quickly on issues to make that rapprochement. But it's not there at the moment. And the, the fundamental thing that I think that the Palestinians read into what Benjamin Netanyahu says when he talks about a workable relationship, that's daylight between what the US uh, t calls and, and they call a two-state solution and the world sees it as a two-state solution. And that's also daylight between what Secretary Blinken says standing next to Prime Minister Netanyahu when he said that way of growing the circle of peace um, is not a substitute for real uh, progress between Palestinians and, and, and Israelis, meaning that's not the way to go. That was the diplomatic language around it. So th there are a number of real potential flaws in, the, in this high wire act that Prime Minister Netanyahu is carefully walking. Right. Nick Robertson, thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, I want to turn now to Memphis, Tennessee, where the community and the family of Tyree Nichols is preparing to say goodbye. In a few hours, Tyree Nichols will be laid to rest. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris will attend the funeral service. The 29-year-old was horrifically beaten to death last month by police after a traffic stop. CNN's Ryan Young has more. Tyree Nichols to be laid to rest later this morning. His funeral will be held at the Mississippi Boulevard Christian Church in Memphis. Last night, Nichols' family was joined by national clergy and Reverend Al Sharpton at the Mason Temple. The same site, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his last speech, I've Been to the Mountaintop, the day before his assassination in April 1968. The need for justice has brought us here again. Sharpton, who is scheduled to give the eulogy at Nichols' funeral, called for police reform. We are going to continue to fight this fight around police brutality and yes. killing yes. until we get federal laws changed. Yes. What happened to Tyree is a disgrace to yes. this country. We're all Tyree now. That's yeah. right. Yes. And we're all going to stand up with this family. Yes. That's right. This, as we are learning more videos, are set to be released from the investigation in Nichols' death. And we are seeing for the first time a picture of the initial police report filed just hours after the traffic stop that says Nichols was pulled over for reckless driving. The report contradicts police video released last week. It states Nichols started to fight with officers and says he was grabbing for Detective Martin's gun, further stating he began actively resisting and pulling the duty belts and grabbing Officer Smith by his vest. The report lists one of the officers as a victim. The report does not mention the officers punching and kicking Nichols. Officers are seen discussing this at the scene. We got him out of the car. We was like, hey, bro, you good? Swarm. Bow. Almost hit me. You reached for Martin Gunn. Additionally, personnel files obtained by CNN show that several of the Memphis cops charged in connection to Tyree Nichols' death have histories of minor department violations including Emmett Martin, who joined the Memphis Police Department in 2018 and had two separate suspensions. Nichols' family wants these officers held accountable. Keep fighting for justice for our son, 
and my family. I've been fighting my whole life, like my whole life. And the one fight that I need to be at, I wasn't here, mm -hmm. you know. And um, at the end of the day, I'm never going to forgive my brother. Ryan Young, CNN, Memphis, Tennessee. All right, still to come here, Powell on the prowl. The U.S. Fed chair set to deliver a brand new inflation prognosis later on today. Are prices falling fast enough for a central bank pivot? We'll discuss with former Fed economist Julia Coronado next. From January jubilation to February hesitation, U.S. futures remain on track for a mostly lower open on this first day of trading of the month. All of this ahead of a challenging few days for global investors. Over the next 24 hours, you've got the U.S. Federal Reserve, the Bank of England and the European Central Bank all expected to raise borrowing costs yet again. The heavy hitters of the tech world are set to release uh, Q4 results on Thursday. And on Friday, the U.S. releases its first look at how the U.S. jobs market is holding up in the new year. U.S. stocks are coming off their best January gains since 2019. The Nasdaq having its strongest start to a new year in over 20 years, soaring almost 11%. Growth stocks that were hit hard last year have come roaring back on hopes that the U.S. Federal Reserve is close to pretty much wrapping up its rate hike campaign. The U.S. Central Bank is expected to raise rates by a quarter of a percent today. And while markets hope that the worst is over, the Fed's future path is far from certain. Let's discuss all of this with Julia Coronado, the founder and president of Macro Policy Perspectives. Julia, thank you so much for being with us. So I think the general consensus is 25 basis points today in terms of the Fed rate hike. So does that mean that the days of 75 basis points are those days firmly, firmly in the rearview mirror? Yes, very, very likely the days of 75 basis point or even 50 basis point rate hikes are probably behind us. The Fed is now sort of feeling its way to what level of rates will keep the economy cooled off and inflation pressures moderating without tipping it into a recession. So that's a, a more delicate task and judgment call. So in terms of what happens today, I mean, obviously, everybody's going to be focused on the headline number, but also in terms of what Jerome Powell actually says, what he says about the state of uh, the U.S. economy and what he really says about the path forward. Right. Yeah. So I think he's going to be cautiously optimistic. The news on inflation and inflation pressures, including things like wage growth for the United States, have been very good lately. But it's a we've had about three months of good news and they really need to see more evidence. Another three months that confirms that these trends are intact because they haven't been broad based across the world. The inflation pressures in Europe, for example, are still a little bit firmer. So they're going to be cautiously optimistic. And then even when they feel like they've reached the, the right level of interest rates, which let's say that's 50 basis points or 75 basis points from where we are right now, their, their plan is to hold it there. So, you know, market optimism needs to sort of take that into account. Rates are going to stay high for a while because the Fed doesn't want to repeat the mistake of the 70s oh. where they called victory too early and those those pressures just came right back. So looking into your crystal ball then, Julie, I mean, how, at what point this year would you expect the Fed to completely put a pause, a pause on rate hike increases? So I do expect that they will pause after the next rate hike. So they're going to okay. hike another 25 basis points in March. 
But by May, which will be the following meeting, they will have enough evidence of cooling labor market conditions, further cooling and inflation pressures that they can sort of, you know, uh, take a pause and look around and, and, and try to then focus on balancing the other risk, which is that they do too much and, tips the, and tip the economy into a recession. Right, because it's all about that soft landing. I mean, Jerome Powell's talked about that. That's yeah. the goal here. So we've yeah. got the jobs report coming up on Friday. I mean, that's a key, that's a key macroeconomic data point. Um, what are they going to be looking for? Yeah. I mean, how crucial is this particular jobs report, do you think? Every jobs report is very important right now. Um, what we've seen is a great deal of resiliency in employment. So we haven't seen broad-based job losses. Uh, filing for unemployment insurance remains near record lows. The unemployment rate remains very low, but what we have seen is wage growth, which had soared during the pandemic, uh, really start to cool off. And we got another data print confirming that yesterday. So if we can cool off wage growth and inflation and bring that down, we don't necessarily need to engineer higher unemployment. Some people call that the immaculate disinflation. But the signs, the data have been very hopeful on that front lately. We've gotten, again, resilient employment and moderating wage growth and inflation. It's, it, that, that's why the market is, it has been rallying. It, it looks very soft landing-like. So in terms of what the Fed actually needs to see going forward, I mean, you mentioned three months' worth of positive news on the inflation month. You said that's not really enough time. They need to see a few more months of that. But then on top of that, you need to see that the labor market is cooling as well. What else? What else does the Fed officials need to see before, you know, uh, saying that, you know, we can temporarily pause rate hikes? Right. Yeah. No. So so one thing is on wage growth, they kind of have a number in mind, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of three and a half percent is consistent with their two percent inflation target. So we've seen uh, wage growth sort of moderate to around four percent. So they'd like to see that keep moderating. That's that's a specific number. Uh, And then the other things that they're looking at, we've we've started to see a lot of which is interest sensitive sectors cooling off, sectors that were perhaps overvalued in financial markets, correcting, uh, you know, sort of the froth of the, of the, you know, sort of peak (coughs) growth period coming out. So we've seen housing correct. We've seen house prices come down, start to come down from an astronomical appreciation during the pandemic. That needs to continue. House prices are sort of out of sync with a higher level of interest rates. Um, so, you know, interest sensitive sectors continuing to stay subdued and moderate and, and move back into alignment uh, with sort of economic fundamentals, if you will. Housing affordability right now in the U.S. has gone a bit crazy. Uh, a housing House price correction is actually good news uh, in a lot of ways from a sort of structural standpoint. All right, well, we'll see what happens uh, this afternoon. Julie Coronado, live for us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, still to come here on First Move, President Biden comes face-to-face with uh, Republican Kevin McCarthy for crucial debt talks. That story next. All right, welcome back to First Move. The curtain going up on a new month of trading on Wall Street. Made it past January, everyone. On this first day of February, U.S. stocks are trading mostly lower. Bit of nervousness ahead of the Fed's interest rate decision later on today in about five hours from now. We'll find out what it is. Stocks 
in the news include Adani Enterprises down 26% today and almost 50% year-to-date shares of the Indian conglomerate continuing to plunge after a short seller reported alleged uh, financial fraud inside the Adani empire, which the firm is, of course, strongly denying. Losses have become so great that Gautam Adani is now no longer the richest man in Asia. He's also dropped off the list of the world's 10 richest people. Also today, shares of parent company of Facebook, Meta, are currently trading lower ahead of closely watched earnings that are out later today. Social media firm Snap trading sharply lower after reporting a Q4 revenue miss and a weak forecast as well. And Peloton shares higher. Uh, the badly beaten down exercise bike firm hailing what it calls a turning point for the company as losses narrow. The stakes are high, but expectations are low for today's talks about the U.S. debt ceiling between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Joe Biden has been warning Republicans not to use the issue as leverage to negotiate spending cuts. The national debt currently stands at more than $31 trillion. If the debt ceiling is not raised, the U.S. risks potentially devastating financial default. MJ Lee's at the White House, where today's talks are taking place. Just walk us through, MJ, how on earth this stalemate gets resolved and what, what realistic, I mean, realistically, what do we actually expect to come out of this meeting between these two men? Well, I think you put it pretty perfectly when you said that the stakes are really high, but the expectations are really low. You know, it may even be too generous to call this meeting this afternoon at the White House a negotiation, uh, even though this is just significant in that it's the first time that the two men are meeting face to face in the new session of Congress. Uh, Look, where things stand right now is that the White House has consistently said that on the issue of raising the debt ceiling, we are absolutely not going to negotiate. There are no sessions we are going to make. No strings are going to be attached. Uh, Whereas for Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker here, uh, he definitely wants to negotiate. He has been fielding uh, requests and ideas from his colleagues in the House. And we know that some of those very members have been really pressing him to get uh, deep spending cuts in return for agreeing to raise the debt ceiling. So uh, the two sides really go into this afternoon uh, being very far apart. And I think that's why the expectations for at least this first meeting are pretty low. And we've gotten indication from our reporting on the Hill uh, that Kevin McCarthy is actually unlikely to even put a specific proposal on the on the table this afternoon that he basically just wants to figure out, is the president willing to negotiate? Uh, Now, there was this interesting moment last night that I just wanted to point you to. Uh, where President Biden was speaking at a fundraiser in New York City, and he uh, started talking about Kevin McCarthy in this uh, meeting, this gathering, and he basically was talking about some of the uh, things that he had to do to actually become speaker. Obviously, you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, there was a lot of drama as we were all not sure if he would actually successfully become the speaker. And in order to clinch that job, uh, he had to make uh, some serious concessions, political concessions, sessions uh, to win over some of his colleagues. And uh, what the president said was uh, that those commitments that McCarthy made to his colleagues were just absolutely off the wall. Those were his his words. Uh, And then he called to a Democrat 
returned to or looked at a Democratic colleague of his, Chuck Schumer, who is a New York senator. And then he said to him, Chuck, I can't imagine you making one of those commitments. So it was just this sort of interesting and colorful moment where we got a little bit of insight into how President Biden has been viewing Kevin McCarthy in his new role and sort of giving him a little jab, right? Saying to him, look, I know that you are the House Speaker right now, but I also happen to know that you are pretty compromised uh, in your new role. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the last thing I will say, too, is uh, early June is sort of the timeline uh, that we are looking at. And that's when we have our calendar circled, because that's when the U.S. Treasury Department has said uh, it can continue making these sort of so-called extraordinary uh, measures, taking these steps to prevent the government from defaulting. And really in Washington, D.C., a couple of months is a really long time for both sides of the negotiations to drag their feet. And this could end up being a very Attracted situation. Yeah, the general expectation is that we eventually will see some kind of deal, but it will take months. MJ Lee, life for us. Thank you. All right, nearly half a million workers are out on strike in the UK today, demanding better pay. The strikes will close schools, cancel university classes, and bring much of Britain's rail network to a standstill in the biggest day of walkouts in years. The National Education Union estimates that 300,000 teachers have taken to picket lines, saying a, quote, toxic combination of overwork and underpay have forced teachers to take action. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says that teachers are already getting paid more. When it comes to teachers, we've actually given teachers the highest pay rise in 30 years. It includes a 9% pay rise for newly qualified teachers and record investment in their training and development. I am clear that our children's education is precious and they deserve to be in school today being taught. And actually the party opposite would do well to say that the strikes are wrong and we should be backing our school children. Nada Bashir joins us live now near Downing Street. So clearly Rishi Sunak not even coming close to backing down on this. But the fact is, Nada, inflation has really sort of wreaked havoc on people's real wages in terms of their take home pay. I mean, everything has gone up, um, especially food items. But it's really basic goods um, where we're seeing major price increases while wages have actually stored. A lot of people say that, you know, that's that's really not fair. Something needs to be done. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the country is facing a worsening cost of living crisis. And anecdotally, we've heard from teachers, from nurses and other public sector workers who say they simply can't afford those basic goods, struggling to pay rent, struggling to afford their basic groceries. And of course, the disruption that we're seeing now as a result of these strikes, they say is really a result of them reaching the very end of their tether when it comes to being able to afford those basic goods. They say that this was a necessary measure in order to put that pressure on the government because, of course, these negotiations between the trade unions and the government have been ongoing for weeks now and they are still really at a standoff. It appears as though those negotiations have stalled. In fact, the uh, trade union representing rail workers says that the negotiations are going backwards the government really not budging on their position. And, of course, today, we have seen hundreds of thousands uh, taking part in that strike. And I have to say, just in the last half hour, this street here in Whitehall, in the centre of government here in London, uh, has cleared up. But just a little while ago, it was full of thousands of people protesting, many of them public sector workers themselves, protesting against the government, demanding uh, better pay, better working conditions. They say uh, this is necessary because while this may cause disruption today, this week, it is those shortfalls that they 
they are facing that are causing long-term disruption within schools, within the NHS, the National Health Service, and of course also within the transport network. Dane? Yeah, I mean, we'll see if these strikes actually make a difference. I mean, it's one thing to strike under a Labour government, but under a Conservative government, uh, we'll see if anything really changes. Uh, Nada Mashiach, life for us there. Thank you. So much. Joy, still to come here two years after a military takeover in Myanmar. Everyday people are taking up arms against the military junta. We'll have an exclusive report after this. All right, today marks two years since the military seized power in Myanmar, ousting democratically elected leader Aung San Suu Kyi. What followed was a massive crackdown. Several leading pro-democracy activists, activists excuse me, were executed and some journalists were arrested. Now, Myanmar is being rocked by violence as rebel groups take on the military. Ivan Watson has a rare and exclusive report on their fight. Racing into battle. Images shared exclusively with CNN, filmed by combat medics in Myanmar. They extract a rebel fighter wounded in a clash last October with government forces. Scenes from a vicious conflict raging across the heart of Southeast Asia, a war that is rarely seen by the outside world. It has been forgotten. The United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in Myanmar is trying to focus international attention on the crisis. It has been two years of the military at war with its own people. We've seen 1.1 million people displaced. We've seen more than 28,000 homes destroyed. Thousands of people have been killed. Before the war, this group of medics included a high school student, a lab technician, and a hospital nurse. Why are you guys doing this? Why are you risking your lives right now? If we don't fight, then we know we won't get democracy. And that is what we want. On February 1st, 2021, Myanmar's top army general announced a military coup, imposing martial law and throwing members of the elected government in jail. A deadly crackdown crushed anti-coup protests, forcing the opposition underground and into the jungle. Armed rebel groups calling themselves People's Defense Forces sprouted up across the country, allying themselves with armed ethnic militias that have battled the military for decades. No foreign country publicly offers them support, so these fighters arm themselves, using ammunition produced in a jungle workshop. Homemade round stored in a refrigerator. This is for airdrop. He shows drone bombs, mortar rounds, and something he calls rifle grenades tested nearby. <laughs> Compare these makeshift weapons to the military, boasting an arsenal that includes tanks and warplanes. One of the military's deadliest airstrikes on record involved what was promoted as a local golf tournament last October. The competition and subsequent concert organized by an ethnic opposition group called the Kachin Independence Organization. Survivors say a famous local singer named Ora Lee was about to perform his second song of the night when an airstrike demolished the building, throwing this local businessman who doesn't want to be identified for his safety up into the air. 
People who had been happily greeting each other, clapping and drinking wine, were now corpses, he says. They were in pieces. It was horrific. Kachin officials say the attack killed the singer and at least 67 other people. In response to a CNN request, Major General Za Min Toon claimed responsibility for the attack in this letter published in the state newspaper. He called it a necessary military operation, targeting a den where enemies and terrorists were hiding. Adding, throughout history until now, the military has never attacked civilians. That statement is absurd. It's ridiculous. There is clear evidence. We, we have video of airstrikes on, on villages. Evidence that points to a growing number of civilian casualties from a conflict with no end in sight. If it remains in the shadows of international tension, then we are providing um, a death sentence to, to untold numbers of people. With no help on the horizon, the next generation has little choice but to prepare for a life at war. Ivan Watson, CNN. All right, major news from the world of sport today. American football legend Tom Brady announcing in a social media video that he is hanging up his cleats for good after 23 stellar seasons in the NFL. You remember Brady actually did announce his retirement this time last year, only to change his mind a few months later. But this time, the Tampa Bay quarterback, who won seven Super Bowl rings in all, says this time he is retiring for good. Andy Scholes takes a look back at his career. In sports, we celebrate our champions and cherish our underdogs. No athlete in history has personified both more than Tom Brady. After starting at Michigan his junior and senior years, Brady was not a highly touted draft prospect, so much so that he had a professional resume ready to go into the business world. But he was selected in the sixth round, 199th overall by the New England Patriots in 2000. Brady's legend was born in his second season as he led a fourth quarter comeback to beat the heavily favored Rams, delivering the Patriots their first Super Bowl title. It just really hadn't even sunk in. Brady would win back-to-back Super Bowls in 03-04, giving him three titles in his first five seasons, but he would then go an entire decade without winning another, before recapturing the magic. In 2014, Brady leading another comeback to beat the Seahawks in dramatic fashion for his fourth Super Bowl ring. His partnership with head coach Bill Belichick resulted in six Super Bowl titles in New England. But there were challenges along the way. In 2015, we had Deflategate. Brady and some of the Patriots staff were accused of letting air out of football so he could grip the ball better. An investigation found Brady was at least generally aware of what was going on and he refused to turn over his texts and emails. He was suspended for four games by the NFL for his involvement. Is Tom Brady a cheater? (laughs) I don't believe so. I mean, I feel like I've always played within the rules. I would never do anything to break the rules. Brady would end up serving that suspension to start the 2016 NFL season. By the end of that season, Brady led the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history, leading the Patriots back from down 28-3 to beat the Falcons. No matter the score, no matter the game, Brady always proved it was never over while he was on the field. When you're losing late in the game, I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? You're already losing. So I always look at it as, you know, a great opportunity. And I think, man, if we come back and win this, this is what, this is what people are going to remember. 
In 2020, Brady moved on from the Patriots, signing with the Tampa Bay Bucks, and he would further cement his legacy, outdueling Patrick Mahomes at age 43 to win Super Bowl 55. Brady retired and then unretired before the 2022 season, saying he still had the desire to play, but that faded after just one season. At 45 years old, Brady leaves the game with tons of records, including the most passing yards and touchdowns. His seven Super Bowl titles is more than any other team in NFL history. For 23 years, he gave sports fans so many amazing moments, and that's why when people discuss the best athletes ever, for many, Tom Brady is at the top of the list. What an incredible, an incredible career that man has had. All right, in Australia, a tiny but very dangerous radioactive capsule has now been found after days of intense search. Crews search an area roughly the length of the United Kingdom. Mark Stewart joins us live now with details. So, Mark, we're talking about crews essentially searching uh, 1,400 kilometers of highway to find something that's smaller or the same size as a 10-cent coin. It's tiny. Exactly. And since this is a business show, let, let's make a money reference. I mean, this is I can't a Hong even see Kong that. coin. It's so tiny, I very, cannot even see it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very similar to a U.S. dime. But, I mean, that's what we're talking about. This capsule is that small, but it's a big part of the mining process. So let me walk you through this because there is a history here. There's a timeline. Um, the capsule was discovered six days after authorities realized it went missing, likely falling off a truck. Eventually, it was found off the side of a road by crews. They were using radiation detection equipment, and it was found not far from the mine, suggesting it fell off the truck soon after it left. That was back on January 12th. But this was a potential search that could have been very enormous. I mean, you talked about about some of the size references. I mean, here's another one. This is a distance longer than the California coastline. Big picture. Uh, eventually, though, it was found. A perimeter was set up. And so now the immediate goal, Zane, is to transport it in a lead container to a health department facility in Perth. But uh, this was concerning because human exposure to radiation, it can cause uh, skin burns. There's radiation sickness, even a cancer risk in some cases. And as we reported yesterday, authorities felt the chance of finding this was slim now they, they have to determine, they're going to have to figure this out and, and, and determine how this even happened in the first place. Yeah, I'm shocked. I'm actually shocked they actually managed to find it. Um, it's so <laughs> tiny, as you pointed out with that coin. But uh, I'm sure there will be some accountability. But technically, it was an accident. It did fall off the back of a truck. But, you know, there will be an investigation, I'm guessing. But Mark Stewart, we have to leave it there. Uh, thank you so much. That is it for the show. I'm Zane Asher. Appreciate you joining us. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 